I close my eyes and picture the emerald of the sea, from the fishing boats at Dingle to the shores of Dunedee. I miss the River Shannon and the folks at Skibbereen, the moorlands and the meadow with their forty shades of green. Johnny Cash's fond description of Ireland as a particularly green country wasn't the first or the last. Irish people often take a lot of pride in our landscape. But how green are we really, and how much have we already lost? I'm Orlan Eagle. I'm a writer and environmentalist born in Dublin and based on Ackle Island. The goal of From the Roots as a podcast is to demystify the science and figures in environmental news stories and to give them the necessary background for you to understand them in 15 minutes or less, or your money back. At the end of this episode, I'll talk more about the format of the podcast going forward. The opening chapter to Pori Fogarty's book on Ireland's vanishing nature, Whittled Away, is titled Not as Green as We'd Like to Think, and challenges the reader on the idea of shifting baselines. The phrase shifting baselines is used a lot in wildlife and earth sciences to explain how our perception of a situation changes based on what we know to measure it against. We see this in the hills and uplands of Ireland that have been overgrazed for so long that most people have no idea how artificial that lack of plant life is. It's a natural trap to fall into. If you don't know what's supposed to be there, how are you supposed to know that it's gone? Similarly, if we don't know where we're at today, we can't meaningfully make plans for where we want to go. So how does Ireland stand, environmentally speaking? Well, Ireland ranks as one of the lowest countries in Europe for forest cover, at just 11.4% in 2020, according to our own Department of Agriculture. The average in the EU27 is 38.8%, and some of our only neighbours that rank below us are Iceland, Malta, and the Vatican. The fact that this level of cover is a dramatic reduction from the natural ecosystems of Ireland is discussed more in episode 2. We're still, of that 11.4 forest cover, only between 1 and 2% of it is native broadleaf woodland. The rest is primarily conifer plantations like the controversial Sitka spruce plantations that you might have heard mentioned. Now that will get its own discussion in episode 3 on tree planting. The main agency responsible for biodiversity, species and protected areas like nature reserves is the National Park and Wildlife Service, NPWS. While they're an organisation set up under national law, they are also responsible for a lot of Ireland's Europe-wide environmental commitments. Not all, but a lot of Ireland's environmental law comes from the EU. This gives an outside checks and balance system to our performance. Episode 5 will focus on the legal structures and state agencies that Ireland has around the environment. The only piece of all that legislation that I'll mention here is the Habitats Directive, which lists various protected habitats like wetlands or protected animals like otters. This directive requires the MPWS to report the status of these listed habitats and species every six years. According to their last survey in 2019, 85% of protected habitats in Ireland are in an inadequate or bad condition. 46% of those habitats are considered to still be declining in health and only 2% of habitats in Ireland are thought to be improving. They list agriculture as the biggest threat to habitats in Ireland, but that's to be expected in a country with so much agriculture. The second highest threat is invasive species, a topic that doesn't get enough attention, that I'll be coming back to in episode 6. Protected species are doing slightly better, with 57% of monitored species in good standing, and 55% of those populations listed as stable. There's a lot of missing data, though, because this type of monitoring is sorely underfunded. Water quality is also a concern. 
The Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, did an assessment of Irish waterways between 2019 and 2022 that stated that only 56% of rivers were in what they classify as a good or satisfactory biological condition. Of the 44 considered to be in unsatisfactory or bad conditions, the two major pollutants were nitrates and phosphates, which usually indicate runoff from agricultural fertilisers. 40% of rivers have unsatisfactory levels of nitrates and 28% with phosphates. There are similar figures for lakes. Over a third of Irish lakes have too much phosphorus in them. Just in the last month, there have been stories about toxic algae blooms in lakes that required national health warnings to keep people and animals away. One in Killarney, one of Ireland's six national parks, and the other in Loch Nee, Ireland's largest lake. In both cases, the algae blooms were connected to phosphate pollution from farm runoff and from human effluent from badly managed waste treatment. Two lakes at opposite ends of the island both suffered from poor management despite plenty of warnings over the years. In fact, Ireland has been fined more than once by the EU because of a failure to meet agreements about septic tank regulation. Our coastal waters fare slightly better with only 20% in unsatisfactory conditions. There are a lot of ways to measure our climate action. One is the Climate Change Performance Index, an independent monitoring tool published once a year. Until this year, it ranked Ireland as 46th in the world for climate action, and we recently rose to 37th. This still leaves us as one of the worst performers in Europe. A lot of that is down to there being no shift in regards to certain agricultural policies, like the promotion of nitrogen fertilisers that I mentioned in regards to water. Pollutants rarely only have one impact, so nitrogen fertilisers are getting their own discussion in episode 4. The rest of it is down to our emissions per capita, meaning per person. When the term emissions is used, that's referring to what used to always be called greenhouse gas emissions, and sometimes still is, or just GHG emissions. More and more recently, there's been a shift towards saying carbon emissions. If there are actual figures involved, it'll usually measure emissions per tonne of carbon equivalent. That converts other greenhouse gases that may have a stronger or lesser effect than CO2 into how much carbon it would take to have the same impact. This sounds complicated, but it's meant to give people a simpler number to focus on and track change over time. Ireland's carbon equivalent emissions per capita peaked in 2000, with just over 20 tonnes per person. 20 tonnes sounds like a lot, because it is. Our emissions have been falling since then, but nowhere near at the rate promised to the Paris Agreement. Emissions fell to 13.3 tonnes in 2021, but the Paris-compatible target for that year was 8.5. What is the Paris Agreement? The Paris Agreement is an international treaty created under a UN convention from 1994 called the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change that is usually referred to in documents as the UNFCCC, which is obviously very catchy. As a side note, a theme we're going to hit in this podcast again and again is how much international organizations love initials and acronyms. The UN in particular is wild for them and has little to no interest in whether a human being could possibly remember or say them. The thing about UN conventions, though, whether you can manage the acronym or not, is that they tend to be big picture and very hard to enforce. A lot of international law operates on an honor system, so it can take a lot of public attention for the pressure of these conventions to really take effect. Because UN conventions are not overly public-friendly, even when they aren't called things like UNFCCC, you can see why this might be a problem. Back to Paris. 
In December 2015, there was an event called COP21. COP is another acronym, meaning Conference of Parties, and it was the 21st Conference of the Parties of the UNFCCC, so at least COP is easier to say. At COP21, 196 countries agreed to a document with the overarching goal that, I'll quote as, to hold the increase of the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, and to pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. It's that treaty that people are referring to when you hear them say Paris goals or emission targets. Ireland has signed up to reach those targets by 2030, a year that seemed very distant to me and probably lawmakers in 2015, but is now rapidly approaching. So it's unfortunate that the Environmental Protection Agency said in June that in their expert assessment of all currently planned climate policies and measures, Ireland will fall well short of Paris targets. All that, and Paris is just one of many international agreements that Ireland has signed up to at any given time that you might not know about. I won't go into detail about the rest of these conventions here after the slog of the Paris Agreement, because we'll come back to that in episode 5. But hopefully that gives you a sense of how the international community talks about environmental law and climate action. And an indication why it isn't something that people who aren't embedded in that conversation tend to pick up casually. At the beginning of September, a legally focused environmental NGO called Friends of the Irish Environment announced that they were taking a court case against the government, claiming that the current climate action plan as written falls short of the government's obligations to emissions reduction. Friends of the Irish Environment previously won a Supreme Court case against the government along similar grounds. The then National Mitigation Plan was ruled too vague to meet the 2015 Climate Act. Their case was built around the Climate Act of 2015 and not the Paris Agreement, which was ratified by the Oireachtas the following year. Like I said, environmental law is hard to enforce beyond public shaming, and Ireland's commitments to the Paris Agreement are largely managed through EU law, which has its own complications that again I'll put off for episode 5. While the goals of the Climate Act are less ambitious, and have a timeline up to 2050 instead of 2030, there has been a history of environmental policies based in national law being given more weight when it comes to enforcement. The case was given leave to proceed by the High Court and will start on November 6th. If you're still with me after all that, congratulations. From here on out, episodes will be focused on specific topics and hopefully less overwhelming in terms of jargon and numbers, but I thought that an overview was the only useful way to start. Episodes are weekly, and each one will have a script published as a blog post on fromtherootspod.com, and that blog will include my list of sources. I try to make sure I have plenty of verifiable sources for each episode, academic, legal, journalistic, so that you can read more deeply if you're interested or just check that I have my facts straight. I'm a generalist, so it's always possible I could misrepresent the nuance of something more specialist. I'm happy to get feedback to the From the Roots website, email or Twitter, which you can find in the episode description. Thanks for listening. From the Roots podcast is not associated with any groups, and any opinion which inevitably shapes the information provided is entirely my own. It's published under a Creative Commons, Attributation, Non-Commercial 4.0, International Public License.